You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and so we're in the middle of books, and we're going to kind of spend today specifically looking at that, that Jesus was declared king On Palm Sunday. So Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11 is our text today. So if you can go ahead and turn there. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for our time today. God, we uh, come before you. We're so thankful that we get to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God in this place. God, we thank you for providing a way to get here and this space that we get to meet. And God, we, we ask, we plead with you to meet us in this place today. We don't just want this to be a time where we just see our friends and our kids have a good time. We ask that the living God would speak to us through your living word. Would you do that, Lord? Would you show us, remind us, speak, speak to us the importance and the power and the significance of you being declared the king of kings and what that does for us personally in our own lives. And so as you go before us, be in our midst, and go behind us today, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the start of Passion Week or Holy Week. It starts today and it runs through next Sunday. And it depends on how you grew up or how religious you were when you were a kid probably to you know, hold any importance of that. But the most meaningful and important week that in the church as Christians we have in our calendar is this week. Yes, the birth of Christ, big deal. Christmas, we celebrate it. Yes, big deal. But the passion of the Christ, the passion week starting from today, leading through next Sunday, is the most meaningful and important week that as a church that we can celebrate. And I don't know if this is going to bum you out too much, maybe your kids, but Easter week is so much more than Easter bunnies and peeps and Easter baskets and spring is here and all that we put around it. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's good. Yes, there's, there's parts. Yes, let's give our kids some candy. Sure. But the most meaningful thing and important thing as a church, as a people of God that we can remember and celebrate is what happened this week in the life of our Savior. And there's a lot that happened in the life of Jesus this week. In seven days, the whole world changed, right? The, you know, we're going to study today. Don't, I won't get to that in a second. But then Jesus you know, goes into the temple. He overturns the tables. Judas betrays him. They celebrate the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane happens, Jesus gets arrested, he gets put on trial, he's found guilty, he's tortured, he's publicly executed, and then next Sunday, he rises from the dead. A lot happened this week. It's a busy week for Jesus. It's it's, It's the formative part of our faith happens this week, and celebrating Holy Week isn't an obligation, but it's an opportunity. Many of us haven't or don't think too much about Easter till it's Easter, right? You'll leave church today. 
Oh, Palm Sunday message, cool. And a lot of us, right, we have busy lives and responsibilities and jobs and families and emails and to-do lists and shopping. And all of a sudden, we'll be next Saturday and be like, oh my gosh, Easter's tomorrow. Easter's tomorrow. And so many of us just won't take this wonderful opportunity to pause. And to actually read for ourselves the account of what happened. So I want to encourage you, before we get into our text today, to read these things above for yourself. Like, starting where we're going to start today, then read through the resurrection. Like, read it. Dig into it. See for yourself. Maybe for some of you guys haven't read eight chapters of the Bible or whatever in one week in a long time. This is your time to pick it back up and either open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and spend a few minutes each morning reading what happened from Palm Sunday till Christ's resurrection. Are you with me? Let's do it together. Let's endeavor to jump into God's word and see it for ourselves. Be reminded of what this week holds. But it starts. This week starts with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. This is called the triumphal entry, and we see this in our text today, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. If you want to read it in a different gospel, Mark has it, chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. Luke has it, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44, and John has it in, verse, in chapter 12, 12 through 19. These are all four different accounts of the triumphal entry of Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the Passion Week leading up to the cross and resurrection. But why don't you join with me and read Matthew's account today of this triumphal entry, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Uh, It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So here's what's happening. John's account of this same thing would tell us that there were large crowds gathered in Jerusalem at this time. It's because this was due to Passover, the Passover festival, which... That every year, people would travel from near and from far to Jerusalem on one of the greatest holidays for Jews, the Passover. And the Passover was celebrating or looking back at what happened in Exodus chapter 12 when literally God passed over the homes of the Jewish people that had spread the, the, the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. The Passover reminded every Jew of how God 
saved them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He passed over them. He spared their lives. And every year as they came to Jerusalem, as they celebrated, as they remembered back, they remembered God's mercy and his grace and his power to free them from the hand of Pharaoh. And now they're in the promised land in Jerusalem, the, the, the head of the, the, the Jewish religion, and they're celebrating Passover. And many of them would be coming all the way from Galilee and northern Israel, from all over, and they would have with them a Passover lamb, a pure, spotless lamb that was living in the home of the family, and they would have raised this lamb, and they would have taken this lamb with them on this journey. could have been for days of this journey. Each of the families had this Passover lamb, and they would ultimately sacrifice this lamb at Passover the coming Friday. And so when Jesus came into Jerusalem, there would have been lambs for sacrifice all over. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, said at Passover time, this Passover time specifically, there might have been upwards of 250,000 families in the city at the time. It's not a, it's not a small group of people. There are families, there are, there are Jewish families that have traveled near and far to celebrate and remember Passover. They would have had their lambs with them, taking the lambs so that they could ultimately sacrifice the lambs at the end of the week to remember the way in which God had passed over their ancestors in Exodus chapter 12. What's so significant, what's so significant to that, and I won't get into it, is that Jesus Christ would be the Passover lamb that would save the sins of the world. He's the pure pure, spotless, perfect lamb that would fulfill all requirements. It would fulfill God's wrath on behalf of humanity. And so what's so significant as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, all these lambs are signifying what's to come, and he is the one that would once and for all pay the debt of sin for humanity as the pure, spotless Passover lamb. That's a whole other sermon, though. But what's happening here is this weird donkey mission, right? So that's, what, that's the scene. The city is bustling. Everyone's there to celebrate Passover. And what does Jesus do? He asks his disciples, go get a donkey, and the donkey's, you know, cool. Go get a small donkey and the mom donkey and bring them to me. And they're like, what? It's not even ours. Well, if they have any questions, just say the Lord has need of them. Just take the, someone's donkey. Take two donkeys for me, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to ride into the city on a donkey. <laughs> this is the most underwhelmingly, like, this is the most underwhelming thing that a king could ever do. Think about it. Finally, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is coming into Jerusalem during Passover, knowing what will culminate at the end of the week, being king, being the Son of God. What he should have been on is a war horse, right? His disciples should have been on horses. I mean, this should have been a powerful procession of power. Like 300 years before in Jerusalem, Alexander the Great rode in with his whole army on war horses. If there's ever a time for the King of Israel and the Son of God and the Messiah to come in, it would have been on 10 times as many horses as Alexander the Great. But Jesus, what did he do? He said, go get the donkey. Go get a colt. Let me ride on that. The thing is, is there's no coincidence. This isn't a change of plans. It wasn't like Jesus forgot the horses, couldn't find the horses. Let's just grab the donkey, that'll do. 
same thing will happen. There was no coincidence. This was very intentional that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey. Our inspired writer here, Matthew, is sure to record for us and connect the dots. It's Matthew that brings up fulfilled prophecy, if you notice that. Right? In our text today, this whole donkey mission goes on. And then in verse 4, Matthew, the author here, reminds the reader, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Verse 4. If you didn't get it, if you didn't know what was happening, let me remind you. And this prophecy is actually from Zechariah 9.9. And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he. He's humble and he's mounted on what? Not a war horse, but a donkey. Not just a donkey, a colt, a fowl of a donkey. Exactly what Jesus was doing. Every practicing Jew would have known this. Matthew makes sure because we might have missed the significance. He, he includes it. But Zechariah wrote this prophecy 500 years prior. This is like an ancient prophecy, an ancient text. But as a religious Jew that knew most of the Old Testament, when they saw Jesus, Passover week, this guy that was stirring up all of Israel, performing miracles and healing the blind and raising the dead and claiming to be God, when they would have saw him on a donkey... Everything would have clicked, and 500 years of prophetic history would be happening right in front of their eyes. Matthew makes sure that we know the significance of what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. And Zechariah is often labeled like a minor prophet, but his prophecies are of like major importance, and it's, they're alluded to or quoted over 80 times in the New Testament, and the most famous one is this one, Zechariah 9.9. In this prophecy, he's exhorting God's people, whom he calls the daughter of Zion, to celebrate their future, to rejoice in the promise of the coming king and in the establishment of his kingdom. This is such a big deal. For us, it's hard because we're removed 2,000 years. Uh, for most of us, we're not Jewish. We're not practicing Jews. We weren't needing and wanting a king to save us from Roman oppression, and we hadn't been waiting for this. But in that moment, this is the thing that would have spoke the loudest. This is, this is as much as we think, that's weird, there's a donkey. Let me just move on. What did he do? The donkey is the biggest part of the story here. This was the thing that spoke the loudest, that the Messiah, Israel's promised king, was finally here. And he was here much more than they could ever imagine, right? They were hoping for a political hopeful, a peacemaker among their enemies. Oh man, finally, we don't have to be under the Roman Empire anymore. We don't have to pay their taxes. We have Israel's king. But obviously we know that Jesus came for a lot more than just to save Israel from Roman rule. That actually wasn't his plan at all. But if we go on to read Zechariah 9.10, a lot of times even Matthew, he only quoted Zechariah 9.9. But 500 years prior, the prophet, minor prophet, Zechariah, adds or continues on with the prophecy, and it says this. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow, excuse me, and the battle bow will be broken. And he, speaking of Messiah, King Jesus, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What Zechariah wanted to make, make clear was that Jesus' kingdom, his authority, his kingship, wasn't just for Israel. It was he was to be king over the nations, the king of kings that ruled the whole world. That is, that is the point. And Matthew keeps connecting the dots. If you know the book of Matthew at all, at the end of Matthew is the famous, what we have coined it as the Great Commission. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus would say, all authority has been given to me. Now, do what? Go therefore to all the nations and baptize and tell them about me. At the end of the book of Matthew is referring to what's happening here in Zechariah's prophecy is that our Messiah, the world's Messiah, wasn't just for Israel, but it was for the whole world. That as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, he wasn't just to be king over Israel, but he was to be the king over all people of all nations and not just Israel. Not just for the Jew, but for the Gentiles like you and I, our king. Humble and meek, riding on a donkey, came to save the whole world and draw men and women from every nation unto himself. None of us are left out of God's plan. Yes, this was in Israel, and yes, it was most significant to the Jews, and yes, there's so much that can be learned and so much significance that comes from Jesus saving the Jews, but it was not just for the Jews, it was for the Gentile alike. We have been grafted into God's family, and none of us are left out of God's plan. And so as much as this is a historical count of a Jewish man from Nazareth riding on a donkey in Jerusalem, this story is potent for every single one of us that lives on the earth. And what would start this day... I'm referring to Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago now. What would start this day would culminate next weekend. Everything that's happening as Jesus rides on the donkey on the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem culminates with Friday. Right? That, that's why we reflect and remember upon Good Friday and why three days later we rejoice because the king that came on a donkey died a, a, a horrible Sinner's death, but then rose victorious, defeating sin, death, and the devil for all of humanity. Cannot overstate the importance of reflecting, stopping, pausing, remembering what this week is. But for Jesus, in this moment, on Palm Sunday, on the donkey, in the on the Passover week, the time was now and he was entering Jerusalem in a very public way. As king, not in a hidden way. If you've read any of the Gospels, what Jesus usually does, it, it is so weird, it's so strange until you, until you see this, but he, he, he performs these unbelievable miracles. I mean, things that you, you would want to tell the whole world about. And Jesus would always tell his followers, don't say anything. 
Don't tell anybody I did this. Don't tell anybody anything that happened. And people would always, like even the disciples were like, I don't understand what's happening here. He would always say, don't tell anyone. The time isn't right. It's not now. And it wasn't because everyone would miss the big picture if it happened too soon. They already wanted to crown him as Israel's kings, but he had so much more in store. And the time was now for him to be publicly displayed as the king. Jesus knew that what he was doing was a suicide mission. He, was, he knew this. He knew what would come of this act of publicly being declared king. Jesus knew that the religious leaders were going to arrest him, condemn him, mock him, scourge him, and deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. He knew that. He alluded to that. He spoke of that uh, chapter before, Matthew 20, verse 19. Yet, he had the courage to not only enter Jerusalem, but to enter in in as a public way as possible. And this very much contrasts his previous pattern of suppressing publicity. But unlike other suicide missions, right, normally when we think of a suicide mission, someone is intending to kill themselves to kill others. We're, We're too used to that these days in the world. But Jesus, unlike that, his mission was to die to save others. He was going to his death to save humanity. That's unlike any other suicide mission, unlike any other king. Normally, what we, what we see of religious leaders and of other kings and in, this, in, in, in this way is that kings usually ask their subjects to die for them and for their agenda, but our king said, no, I'll die so that you can be saved and be with my father. That's what separates. This is the essence of the cross. This is the core of Christianity that our king actually died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is signing his death warrant the moment he got on that donkey on Passover and entered the city of Jerusalem. And what are the, what, what's, the, what's the crowd's response? Right? There's, there's thousands of people going into Jerusalem. What's the crowd's response? Well, largely, the crowd's response is like a king's procession. It says that they laid down palm fronds and coats in front of Jesus' path to ride upon. This is where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is because they laid palm fronds like a red carpet ushering in the king. They laid their coats, they laid palm fronds down, and the act of spreading out their garments and the act of spreading out these palm fronds was one of recognition and loyalty and promise of support. And those that we hear about here that acknowledged him as king, right, that when they saw that it was Jesus, when they saw that it was fulfilling prophecy, those that actually believed laid down their coats, laid down their palm fronds, and they actually began to shout. They began to sing to him, right? Verse 9, it says, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed him, they shouted, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This right here was an open messianic adoration of Jesus. There was no doubt what they were saying. This wasn't just like, good job, I'm with you, yeah. 
Cool. This was a messianic adoration of Jesus. Hosanna means save now, and it was addressed to only kings. And this idea here, Hosanna, uh, transliterates the Hebrew expression that originally was a cry for help. It was, it was a yelling, save me, save now. It, it, it later became a blessing and even an acclamation. But to give Jesus this title would have acknowledged him publicly as the son of David, the Messiah who is coming in the name of the Lord. And this just isn't any phrase. It's the kind that welcome, that, that, that's, that's reserved for Israel's save, Savior. Excuse me. And we see this in Psalm 118, verse 26. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's speaking of the rejoicing there is when the Lord comes, the Lord's triumph. The people here are praising God in the highest heavens for sending the Messiah. This is a huge deal. But as we know, this week wouldn't only be a celebration. Right? That, that's what it should have been. The Son of God's here. The King's here. The whole world. Yes, he's here. He's finally here. But this week wouldn't continue like that. He'd be arrested. He'd be beaten. He'd be publicly executed for people believing the opposite of him. See, some saw him as king. Some were singing. But some thought he was a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God and he's not. He's claiming to forgive sins. How could he dare? Only God can do that. And that's ultimately why he went to the cross because he was claiming to be God, but people believed that he was not. So it's very divided in the city. Tension is high. Many believe. Many are singing. Many are crying out that he's the Savior, but many are not. But the question that we have to ask ourselves to bring 2,000 years of history to, to our own life is who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we say he is? Do we recognize Jesus as king? King of the universe? The king that came to save the nations? The king of our lives? Do, do we think of him that way? Or, or another way to think of it, who do we pledge our allegiance to? Is it King Jesus or is it something or someone else? See, because God's kingdom supersedes whatever earthly nation we have allegiance to. Right? Our ultimate allegiance should be to King Jesus. Our ultimate spiritual allegiance should be to Christ. To even say it differently, to help us understand, what does that mean? That I don't know. I'm sure, he's king. He told me he was. To bring it even home a little bit more. Who is on the quote-unquote throne of our lives? In other words, who are we submitting to? Who directs our lives? What kingdom are we under? Whose authority are we under? Is it money? Is, is money king? Status? Reputation? Maybe, maybe family, maybe a spouse. Who's on the throne? Who directs the life? Who has the ultimate say? Where's the buck stop? What drives us? Is it King Jesus and his authority and his kingdom and his goodness and his grace and his will? Or is it Riz's will? What I want. What people think of me. What I want in life. What's my 10-year plan? What do I want retirement to look like? What drives me? Who's king? 
The question I would want to ask all of us is, who's our king? Is it rightfully King Jesus, or is is it a false king? Is it someone or something else that should be taking the position of God in our lives? Because even at this moment in history, it was split. Not everybody was just easy to surrender and give their lives to Christ and put their trust in him and believe. Same is true of us today. Who do we believe in Jesus? And as much as we don't think we have to figure that out, we actually do. We have to wrestle with that. Because here's the deal. Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. I steal this from C.S. Lewis, genius. But you can't just think Jesus is a moral teacher because he was saying some pretty crazy things. He was actually saying to be God. If, If you see someone on that side of the road right now coming down from Palolo Valley saying, I'm God, I can forgive your sins, I can heal the sick, I can raise the dead. Honestly, I'd be like, you're a crazy guy. You're crazy. Or everything that Jesus was saying was just a huge lie. He was the best deceiver deceiver and con artist and manipulator, and he got a bunch of disciples, and he got a bunch of crowds, and he got a bunch of people to pen some letters to make him look really good. He was either really crazy, he was either a liar, the best one, the biggest liar in all of human history, or what he said about himself was true. You have to wrestle with those things. Jesus isn't just another person in history because of what he said and what he did. There is incredible evidence, tangible evidence, that he really did rise from the dead. We we believe that. I believe that. But I'm just going to tell you right now. It's not just like, oh, Jesus was just this guy in Israel and he's a religious figure. We've got to figure out what to do with Jesus. So the question I have for us today is who do we believe Jesus to be? Is he king or is he not? And you know what? We're really good at trying to do both. I believe you, but I'm going to do my own thing. You're king. I'm going to say it. I go to church. I grew up in the church. Of course you're king. But when it comes to our lives and our relationships and our life, and our life wouldn't tell that same tale. It's real easy to do. Say who Jesus is. Right? Lord. He's Lord, but, but, but is he Lord over your family, your work, your thoughts, your time, what he's given you? You get what I'm saying. The practical has to match what we say he is. And we're really good at wanting both. But here's the deal. <laughs> we may have allegiance to another master. And that's, that's, that's the truth of it. And that's what Jesus does. He confronts our allegiance. King Jesus does that. He confronts who we have allegiance to. But the good news is that he came to forgive and free us of another allegiance. And our king, our king Jesus, he took the wrath of God so that we didn't have to pay the penalty of us having allegiance to someone or something else. Literally, our king provides pardon and amnesty and a chance for allegiance unto him. 
This is incredible because we're talking about our sin that we've accrued. We're the ones that have disobeyed God. We're the ones that have rebelled. We're the ones that should pay the debt, but Jesus paid our debt for us. And he says, it's for you. Do you want to be pardoned? Do you want to have freedom? Come, I'm your king. Come be with me. Be free of the false kings that you're living your life for and come follow the king of kings. And that's a question that all of us have to wrestle with. Do we want that? It might be scary. It might be unknown. You might be like, what does that mean? All that comes. All the details come. But the question is, are we willing to make Jesus the king of our lives and sit on the throne of our lives? Because what Christ came to do was to turn our betrayal into allegiance and our rebellion into worship. We're all, we are all in that same boat at one time, or we all might be in that same boat still, that we're rebellious, that we're doing our own thing. What we want to do, what standard do we live by? It's my standard. But King Jesus, on that donkey, comes in, and he would prove that he was king by his death, that he had said he was going to die, and then his resurrection, that he said he would rise from the dead, and he does it. So the question is, friends, is who is our king? Is it King Jesus, or is it someone or something else? And the encouragement, the application that I would want for us today is come to Jesus. He's a king that died for you so that you could have life and that abundantly in life eternal. He's gracious, he's loving, he's caring, and he is far better than any king that you could ever serve, ever have allegiance to, or ever take any authority from. It's King Jesus. He's the one true living God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the incredible gift of your son that while we were yet sinners, that Christ, you died for us. You came to live as a man in a sinful world, to undergo mocking and persecution and, and torture and arrest, false arrest, and ultimately die on our behalf. But God, we want to say that, that we recognize you as the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the King of the universe, that you're the King of the nations, and you're the King of our lives. And we ask, Lord, as, we, as, we, as we're confronted with this truth, as we're confronted with your word, we pray, Lord, that our allegiance would be unto Christ and Christ alone. God, would you search our hearts where we maybe have one foot in the door and one foot in your kingdom. We have one foot in our own kingdom and one foot in yours. God, would, would your loving kindness lead us to repentance? God, we just admit that we're prone to wander, that we're wayward, that so often we stray to the right and to the left. And God, we want you to be king. We want you to be king of our life. We want you to have the control. We want you to have the final say because we were created for that to happen. We were created for you to be God and us to be your children, your creations. 
And so, God, I pray that you would work these things out in our lives, that all of us would come to the place of surrender, knowing that we need a king, and that king being you. Thank you for this week, God. Thank you for this time that we get to worship you now.